All right, uh, Bibles are marked. First Peter is where we are. Let's pray, and then uh, I'll tell you why we're in First Peter. Father, as we open your word, uh, we just continue to look to you for answers. We continue to look to your word. Lord, we believe that all things work together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purposes. So, Lord, as, a, as, a, as an individual, me personally, as a church, we are just laying down our will, laying down our dreams, our passions, our hopes, laying them on the altar, Lord, submitting them to you and asking you to restore your dreams, your life, your passions, that your life would be lived out through ours. Lord, we just submit ourselves, we yield ourselves to you, uh, I pray completely. As we sang, uh, we surrender all. And that is so much easier for us to say, Lord, than it is for us to do. And we're thankful that you're patient uh, with us. As we open your word, we accept it and receive it as it is in truth, not the word of man, but the word of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you speak to us, that you'd change our will, that you'd move our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Uh, being that it's Communion Sunday, uh, I have a heart for and a desire to, uh, in this, especially in this day and age that we live in, to uh, elevate or re-elevate the place of uh, church life in our minds and in, in the minds of people in the church. Uh, you know, and I know, many people have formed a, have a very, very low view of church. You know, yeah, I'm saved, but I don't really go to church. I don't see it's really necessary. Uh, I just, I stay home and I watch church TV, or I just kind of, I, I pray in my backyard. I talk to God, and, and somehow that's supposed to be uh, enough, or that's supposed to be right. And I understand people get hurt. People have struggled with abuses in the church, and there's been, you know, dysfunction in the church, and there's been bad leadership in the church. But that doesn't mean we throw the whole thing out. Jesus the church is the body of Christ. Church is not what we do or where we go. Church is who we are. It's who we are the church. And so I struggle as, as an individual. I, since I got saved, I have loved to be part of the church, part of the body of Christ. And as we break bread together today, as we share the, the sort of the ritual of communion, the passing out of the, the cup and the bread, uh, it's unless it's connected to something more then all it is is a ritual and so in a world where the, the the view of the church has become so low and 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 been been so diminished i'm hoping that one of the things i want to accomplish today is to raise in our own minds and hopefully then in the minds of others uh, and continue to defend the body the bride of christ the body of christ because this is christ died for her and he loves his church we may struggle with her we may have our challenges but christ loves his body he loves the church and he said on this rock i will build my church he's not ashamed uh, of us none of that so as we go into to first peter we're going to look at chapter four just verses seven through eleven and as i get to to get into this I guess my question is, how many of us have ever experienced some type of team or group 
based activity, whether you were on a, a sports team or in the math club or in the marching band or something where you were not participating alone. If you've experienced, anybody been on a, on a team sport? Right, so you, we understand that when you're on a team, you participate with everybody else on the team. And you, 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 we're, we're individuals and there, there's an individual aspect to our lives. And in America, we tend to over uh, emphasize the individual at the cost of the corporate, the community. But in a team, you can't do that. You know, yes, the individual is important, but if the individual on the team becomes too important, it's not good for the rest of the team, right? But everybody on that team has a role to play. Now, uh, communion is the Greek word koinonia, a fellowship, and that means joint participation. That means we participate in the life and the body of Christ together. And that's represented as we break bread together, that we are, on one, on one hand, individuals, but on the other hand, we're not isolated. We're part, we're individuals that are part of this group or this family or this body or this team. So imagine, as we get into First Peter, so imagine that you go to the high school, and maybe some of you don't have to imagine, maybe you really do, and you, you're really tall, and you've got great hands, and you're really fast, and the football team is getting ready to get started up, and someone says to you, you know, you ought to come out for the football team. You know, it looks like you just, you know, you should be part of this. And so you, you go out to the meeting, and you go, wow, this, this sounds good, football. You know, I think I could play football. And, and, and you, get the, you get the shirt, you sign up for the team, and then you find out there's practices. You know, ah, practices. I don't know there going to be practices. I mean, I want to be on the team. I mean, I think it's really cool. Now, do you see way, the way people, the, the community look at people that are on the football team? And we're in the paper. And, and people recognize us, and it's important, and, and we want to be part of the team. But the practice thing, man, that's inconvenient. You know, I, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'll come once maybe, but if it doesn't work out, you know, I'm not coming back to practice. So you come once, and you go, you know, I got there's My favorite TV show is on during practice time. Or I got this new video game I'd love to play. And so you just quit coming to practice and you figure you'll just, you know, you'll wear that, you'll wear the jersey, the old flute goes yellow and or gold and blue and you'll sit home and you'll watch football on TV. And that should be good enough. And well, the season goes by and you've gone outside maybe with someone to toss the football around and the season goes by and then and the, the team wins the state championship. Wouldn't that be awesome? Flute goes state champion. The team wins the state championship. And then you go, you hear about it, you go, oh man, my, my football team won the state championship. And so you show up to the, to receive the trophy with the rest of the team. And everybody's looking at you like, now you haven't, you haven't ever lined up on, a, on the line of scrimmage. You haven't got done the two a day practices. You haven't taken any hits. But there you are to receive the trophy. And what's the rest of the team going to say? I don't, you, you may look like you're on the team, but you haven't been on this team. And what's the coach going to say? You were never around. And so I say all this to say, as, an, as an, an intro to 1 Peter chapter 4, let me read it, and I want you to keep that idea in mind, because we, we know it in the natural, and I'm trying to show it to you in the spiritual. Verse 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. 
If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter is writing to a group of people, the church, who are uh, enduring uh, suffering because they are part of the body of Christ. Because of their Christianity, they're, they're going through some hard things. They're going through some tough times. And that's basically what First Peter is about, just encouraging them as they're going through these hard times. And verse 7, this section begins with, but the end of all things is at hand. And so that tells me a couple things. Number one, that there is an end to all things. The natural culmination of what everything was pointing to is, is, is at hand. Now that was 2,000 years ago. So if it was at hand then, I would say it's probably more at hand now. It's still at hand. We are still living in the last days. And this is also, everything is pointing to God wrapping it up. This earth being destroyed. A new heaven. A new earth. Christ returning. Setting up His kingdom on the earth. And Peter says, look, remember folks. Because you may be going through some tough times. You may be going through some suffering. And he's reminding us that there is an end to these things. Now when you're suffering, knowing that there's an end is really encouraging. I know when participating in athletics, if you run a race or, or ride or, you know, some type of event, uh, then you know that when that when the end is close, like you get this little burst of energy. At least I do. Maybe maybe you do too. Like I know is if I got a mile left, like I, I can, I've got a little more left in me for that mile. And so the encouragement here is, look, friends. I don't know what you see, what what, what you watch the news, when you see what's going on in in the neighborhood, when you see what's going on in the world. Peter reminds us that it's not always going to be this way. That things are not always going to just continue to go on and on and on. There is an end, a natural conclusion to which God has been bringing everything on the face of the earth that will come. And to me, that's encouraging. To me, that gives me hope. And because that is true, he says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you uh, went out to the movie theaters to see War Room? The movie. In, in the first service, a lot of people had seen it. But I hear it's an excellent... I haven't seen it yet. But I hear it was very good. Matter of fact, it's vying for like number one in the box office right now. And it's... Who knows what the topic of the movie is? It's about prayer, right? It's about prayer. And so Christians are showing up. The, the Christian community is showing up in droves to support this. And I, and I think that's a good thing. But it's a movie about prayer. And, and people are really inspired by it. And Peter says, he doesn't question whether or not they will be praying. He's just telling them how to approach prayer. So the assumption is, is that prayer will be happening. And the assumption, when, when I look around here, the assumption is that prayer is happening. And all the more as we see these last days uh, playing out. He says, therefore, you know, when you pray, and we should pray, and, and prayer for us, you know, War Room talks about the prayer closet and having a private place to pray. That's one way to pray. Uh, another way to pray is with a cor- in, a, in a group, in a corporate prayer. So that's what we do tonight. But prayer is sort of this ongoing communication that we have with the living God. It's speaking to God in your heart. And sometimes those things get verbalized and sometimes they don't. But prayer is sort of like the lifeblood of of those of us that have and understand an ongoing living relationship with God. 
And it's the ability we have to sit in an airport and watch everybody on their cell phones trying to be connected. And it's the ability to speak to God in my heart at the airport, going, God, would you look at that? They're all on their cell phones. I'm so glad I can talk to you. And it's the ability to ask God, God, you know what's going on in my life. What do you think? What, what do you see in me? What do you see in this situation? And, it's just, and it's, it can happen in the car, in an elevator, uh, in an airport, where any time, any day, any place. This prayer that happens with God, this communication with God. And he says to us, in, if doing that, in doing that, be serious. Be se- now, some of your Bibles may say something different for that word serious. I'm not sure. Maybe it says sober-minded. That would be a good translation. It's a really cool word, and it's a combination of two Greek words that, that mean the mind and to keep safe. So in other words, he says, in your prayers, keep your mind safe, or have a saved mind, or keep your sanity. I like that. It's the same word that was used of the demoniac, the guy that was demon-possessed in the, in the tombs, and he was naked, and he was breaking the chains, and he was going crazy. And then Jesus cast the demon out of him into the pigs. Remember that? Legion. And then he's found sitting there, clothed, and same word, in his right mind. He had gone from being insane to having the ability to think clearly, to be sane, to have his wits about him. So Peter says, hey, when we pray, have your wits about you. Because we live in a world where people are going insane. People are going crazy. I mean... A homicide, Lake Monticello. A homicide, Charlottesville. People on the news getting shot. I mean, this is, seems to be an increasing thing. I mean, we didn't have to worry about school security when I was going to school. You know, the biggest thing was getting thrown in the showers or, you know, having your head stuck in a toilet. Those were bad. That's what we thought was bad, right? People are going insane. There's no foundation, no base, uh, confusion. But when we pray, we don't have to be like Chicken Little. Oh no, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. What in the world is God going to do now? Everything is happening according to plan. And we have a God that we can pray to and we can talk to. And He says, when you come, come with a saved mind. Understand how to pray. Understand what to pray. Understand the times we're living in. And guard your mind. Keep a sane mind. And He says, be watchful. And that's literally the word sober. Don't be drunk. You know, and because when you drink, when you're, and maybe someone in here involved in alcohol, uh, it clouds your thinking. It clouds your responses. It clouds your reactions. You can't think clearly. Uh, no good comes out of it. Don't even try to pray. Uh, if you've been, I've witnessed to people that have been drinking. That's really hard. Well, first, one of the first Bible studies we ever started uh, doing was a community in it, like at somebody's backyard. And it was funny because they would bring a, a cooler of beer to the Bible. I mean, we're evangelizing to people that don't know the Lord. And so they, we'd like, can we come down and talk to you about the Lord? Like, sure. And they'd crack open a beer and we'd be, te- you know, teaching the Bible and they'd be drinking beers. Well, you know what happened? And it, without, you know, in, in not too long a time, the, the beers stopped coming out. They waited until after the Bible study. We never said, well, you, we'll teach Bible study, but you can't drink that beer. So the Word of God began to change their lives and began to work and bring conviction. We never said it. But, uh, but be, you know, it's hard sometimes to share the gospel with, with people that don't have their, their wits about them or aren't thinking. And it's certainly near impossible to, uh, to pray uh, when you're not able to think clearly and to make clear judgments. So prayer is, is a priority for, for Peter. And then verse 8, he says, and above 
all things. Do you know what the word in Greek for all things means in English? Just what you'd think. It means all things. Above all things. Give the highest priority to having fervent love for one another. There's a lot we can do as a church and there's a lot that churches do and churches have a lot of busyness and there's this activity and there's that activity and there's, you know, it's so easy to, uh, to make, to, to major in the minors, as we would say, to get focused on the wrong things. But Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all, you can have all faith and you can speak in tongues and you can, you know, give everything you have to missions and all of these things you can do. But what does he say about love? But if you don't have love, then don't waste your time. It's nothing. And so I like this because Peter says, above all things, that make the highest priority. And the, and the Word of God calls us to prioritize our lives. Doesn't it? When the word prior, priority was first coined, I think it was in the 1400s, it was singular. A priority. Something has to be first. But see, we now, in more recent days, have pluralized it. Now we don't talk about priority, we talk about priorities. We talk, well, because we don't want to just do one thing well, we want to try to do everything and we do nothing well. But we feel like we can fit everything in. And it's, it, it's, it's a great lie. You can't. You can't fit everything in and do it all well. And so really, something ends up taking priority. And if you don't choose what it is, someone else will choose it for you. And in church, it's really easy to get distracted by what's, what people want or what's going on over here or how things look or we can have our light machine, light, you know, our, our lights and our fog machines and great music and we can have lots of Bible studies and we can do missions and all that stuff is good. I'm not saying it's not good. But is it first? What's he say is first? Having fervent, excuse me, having fervent love for one another. We're going to share communion today. And it's just a time for us to think and say, wow, you know, I got to think about the priorities of my life. How do I do that? How do I demonstrate? How do I even make time to have a relationship with people in which I can demonstrate and, and show practical acts of love and kindness? And it may call us to reprioritize our lives. And Helga and I, we're thinking this through too. You know, do we do that? And we, we have to think this through as church leadership. Is this the number one thing? We can have a thousand Bible studies, but if we're not loving each other, then the church will, will truly be empty. It may look good on the outside. And the word fervent is a great word. The word fervent is, is, a, is a Greek word that means to be stretched out. And it's not stretched out in the way you might think. It's the word used of a horse that is galloping at full speed. Or a runner who is giving every effort, whose muscles are being stretched to the maximum in a, in a maximal effort to cross the finish line first. So this idea of stretching and straining with maximal effort. So now substitute that in for fervent. He says, above all things, give your maximal effort and capacity toward loving each other. And let everything else fall in behind that. Why? Because, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Because we recognize that in and among any kind of family or community, we're going to rub each other the wrong way. 
You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to do the wrong thing. It's going to come out the wrong way. You're going to hurt somebody. We're going to step on toes. By the way, that's my job, stepping on toes. And unless there's a foundation of love, then, you know, then everything in the world wants to destroy relationships. The relationships are always like hanging in the balance. But when you have a person that you have a love relationship with, a, a loving relationship, where there, there's that relationship is there, then when there's an offense, it's so easy to just overlook it. You know, that's no beat. I know he loves me. I know we have a relationship. And love is the thing that keeps our relationships, keeps those offenses from causing us to divide and split and, and, and be destroyed, our relationships to be destroyed. When there is love present, we endure a lot more with each other because we love each other. And, and that makes forgiveness easier. And that makes relationship easier. And, and that's what, this is a quote, Peter seems to be quoting Proverbs chapter 10, that love will literally hide or veil or conceal a multitude of sins. You can't offend me if I love you. Because I love you. There's nothing you can say to me that, that can hurt my feelings because I love you. And, and that's what, we are committed to each other in love. And that's what Peter is trying to say. If we, Because out there, that love is not understood. And if it's not existing in here, I mean, if we, people come to church and they don't sense that there's love, there might be a lot of activity. But if there's no love, then I might as well go back out there. Because it's no different than in here. But when a church gets a hold of the first priority of making time and prioritizing loving each other, it changes everything. Then, then even simple worship can be sweet. Then even simple time, a simple meal can be awesome. Why? Because there's love. And he goes on to say, verse, uh, verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Isn't that great? As I imagine, Peter's like, you know, I see you guys being hospitable to another, but I hear what's going on in the background. I know what you're saying, you know. Be hospitable. That's a love for strangers. And so we come into the body of Christ we, we are part of the family of God, and that's what the church is. And, and we have our friends, and we're really good at connecting with our friends. But a stranger, hospitality is about kindness to a stranger. So it's looking around and finding who's new here today, who hasn't been here before, who looks lost, and how do I reach out to them? How do I let them know that they're welcome here? Because, see, when a person gets saved, they're coming out of maybe a community that they've had to leave. They're coming out of a sinful community or, or previous relationships that they say they walk away from because those are, un, those are unrighteousness going on in that group, and I can't be part of that anymore. So then they come into the church, and if they're not welcomed here, then they go, wait a second. I'm, not, well, I'm no longer welcome there, and now I haven't been welcomed in here, so where do I fit in? We don't fit in anywhere else but here, folks. If we can't find love and acceptance and grace here in the church and hospitality and kindness towards strangers, then you've had it happen to you. You've gone to a church and you've, you've left saying, you know what, nobody greeted us. I thought for sure. I, you know how many times I've heard that? I went to that church and nobody greeted us. So you take it upon yourself to then greet somebody. Say hi to somebody who's not getting greeted. Show hospitality. And do it how? Without grumbling. And that's literally the word murmuring. You know, you might invite someone over to your house for lunch. You go, 
well, I know I'm supposed to, but yeah, the cost of groceries these days, and murmur. If you're doing something and you find yourself constantly complaining about it, please don't do it. Because it doesn't glorify God. The first sermon, when Helga and I, our first date was church together. And, and I know Helga will remember this. I rem- I'll never forget the, ser- the first sermon I ever heard was uh, from the book of Philippians. It's the passage in Philippians that says, do everything without grumbling or murmuring and complaining. And because this is how our light shines. So if you're doing something and you're grumbling about it, that doesn't glorify God. So don't do it. Find something else to do that you don't have to grumble about. Or ask God to give you a heart to do it. Uh, So evidently there was some mumbling and grumbling going on. Verse 10 says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, are you in each one? What do you think? As each one, so does every, when you were born, you were born with certain abilities, certain graces, certain gifts. I mean, you're, you're tall, you have, an, you have good hand-eye coordination, you have, you're intelligent, you understand math equations. I was not born with that gift. I don't like math. Uh, but everybody's different, and everybody's born with certain abilities that are God-given. And then you cultivate those in your life. Well, when you're born again, you're also given gifts, not physical or natural, but spiritual. Everybody, each one. That's what he says. It doesn't say just some, just those that have earned them. Only those that are super spiritual get these gifts. What does he say? He says, as each one has received the gift. So God, when you get saved, says, guess what? I have a birthday present for you. Now, what is it? We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the point is, you've received the gift, and the, the, the uh, important thing about that is the word minister just means to serve. To serve. To serve tables like a waiter. That You've received the gift, and he says, in, in receiving that, minister it to one another. It doesn't say let the pastor minister his gifts to you, and you guys just receive. He says, minister, there's a ministry to one another. There's a serving. You come in here to serve one another. If you've come in here for what you can get, I apologize because we're going to disappoint you. We're going to let you down. But if you've come in here to serve, say, what do I have and how can I use it? Because the gifts are to build up the body of Christ. That's when Peter says, hey, love one another with this fervent love. Now you say, well, how do I do that? You do that by using the gifts God has given you. That's how you show me that you love me. And that's how I show you. I show you that I love you because I work like crazy studying the Word of God so I can present it to you in a hopefully a not too boring and somewhat understandable manner. That's because I love you and I want you to know the truth. Now, so you say, well, how do I know what gifts I've received? It's probably the thing that you've looked around here and you've said, well, why don't they do this? Well, how come the church doesn't have that? I had a guy one time a few years back, we were in high school, and uh, somebody came up to him and said, you know, I, I think that someone should clean the bathrooms around here. The bathrooms are dirty. And I said, well, here's the bucket. Because you noticed something because of the way God wired you. You've noticed something that we haven't noticed. And you noticed that because God's wired you to notice it. Because, and no one else is doing it because it's your job. And so if you've come here and said, you know, they really should have 
this thing. They really should have that thing. That's probably because we don't have it because we're waiting for you to do it. I wish this church did more with missions in the mission field. We'll go to mission field. We'll pray for you. You know, just lead the way. Use the gift. Demonstrate it. But that's probably the things you notice. You think it's just natural. Like, you noticed it and you wonder, you think we're all idiots because we didn't notice it. But that's how the body of Christ works, isn't it? See, you, we all think, well, we all need to go someplace where we all think the same. Well, I think differently than people at that church. Well, that's why we need you here. I've had people come and say, well, well, I speak in tongues, so I'm going to go to the church where everybody speaks in tongues. Well, we need that here. If you're, if you're going to pray in tongues, then pray for me. I need prayer. That's how the body of Christ works, and it's an awesome thing. He says, as each one has received the gift, minister, serve to, uh, to one another as good stewards. Circle that word, and you can write the word next to that economy. Economy. The Greek word oikonomos, and it's from two words that means law or rule and house. It's the rule of the house, the management of a household. So you just learned something today. The word economy meanings, means managing the affairs of the household. That's what economy means. That's what economics is. And so a steward was the one who was entrusted with the owner of the house's goods and, and, and finances to make good decisions ba- on behalf of the one who owned the house. He was the steward, the one who manages the house. And so to be a good steward of the gifts of God, God says, you tell you what, Steve, I'm going to give you a gift and I want you to be a good steward of it. And what does that mean? How do I be a good steward of the gift God has given me? I use it. I use, God says, I want you to use it. I want you to use it to bless other people. That's how you do it. And it shows that it shows love. So as a good, if you want to be a good steward, you take what God has given you and you use it. So what are some of those examples? Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. So some of you, uh, we, we have the speaking gift. There's a, there's a gift that involves talking. And uh, some of us are really good at talking. So you don't become a pastor unless you're also given a gift of talking. The other day I was at the soup kitchen and the, they were, the vegetables weren't quite cooked enough yet. Like the soup kitchen was about to start and I usually do about a, a five to six minute devotional before the soup kitchen, sometimes maybe seven minutes. And it takes tremendous self-control to do that. So that's why I do it, to practice self-control. And they said, uh, hey, the vegetables aren't cooked yet. Can you like extend it a little bit? I'm like, you bet I can. I mean, an hour, two hours, how long do you need me to go? So the gift of speaking in tongues, interpretation, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, evangelism, these are all sort of gifts that require you to talk. And if you're going to talk, then use the Word of God. We don't want your opinion, or we don't want your knowledge or your wisdom. If you're going to talk, say what God wants you to say. Just say what God says. Now, some people have the gift of helps or, or a gift that doesn't involve speaking, and that's what he says next. If anyone ministers, that's just, if anyone serves. Maybe it's the gift of administration. Maybe it's the gift of giving. It's behind the scenes kind of stuff. It's outside cutting the grass. I was talking to a guy first service who just has come on. You know, our weeds were growing up. Our grass was getting long. And he said, you know, I come do that. I love to cut grass. I don't, don't put me in front of a crowd, man. I can't, I'll trip over myself, but put me in front of a lawnmower and I'm good. And I think it glorifies God when you pull up here and the grass is well maintained. Don't you? 
He shows you he loves you by keeping the place looking neat to bless us. That's the way he, that's what he does. And someone else, they're back there watching the kids to bless you, watching the children as a ministry. So they don't have to say a word. Just watch the kids, you know, or, or this or that. There's a lot of things. But the point is, is that you do it not with your own power, but with the power of the energy that God gives you. Because you'll say, well, I don't know. What can I do? I can't do that. Well, good, right. You can't do it, but God can do it. When you begin to say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my gifts to serve you. And you watch as God, as God begins to intervene in that. I mean, I got no place planting a church. I got no business being a pastor. Matter of fact, the first time I taught a Bible study, you know the advice I was given? My first Bible study ever, the year 1999. The person I spoke to about it in the church I was in said, you can try it, but nobody's going to come. That was the advice I was given. And in my own power, that person was right on. But I said, I'm glad I didn't know what I couldn't do, right? Because God was in it. God Somehow God was giving the Bible study life. And Because you might say, well, I'm a teacher. Like I teach Monday through Friday, I teach. So when it comes to the church, maybe what I should do is I should get involved with children's ministry. I should teach kids. Well, maybe you shouldn't because you know how to teach. You don't need God to teach. You know how to do it. You can write the lesson plan. You know how to present a topic to a, to a group. You know, I think everybody needs the Lord when you're teaching young kids because that's really crazy and hard and they ask hard questions. But you can, you can do it in your own power. Like, hey, I got this under control. When you get involved in something that is stretching you, where you're like, maybe you're the, maybe you're a teacher and we say, well, we really need someone to, you know, to do this, to, to vacuum carpets. You know, ah, vacuum carpets. I've never pushed a vacuum cleaner in my life. I don't know how to do that. Well, maybe then you need the Lord. Or maybe you need the Lord for being in, in, in this other ministry over here where you go, I don't know what to do. Good. We love it when you get involved in something that you don't know how to do. Because then you become desperate for the Lord to be involved. And he says, so with the ability which God supplies, and the ultimate point of all this is that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the point. Is when you do it and it's in your power and you know how to do it and you got it figured out and you took the classes and you did the seminars and now everybody goes, well, look what he did. That's not what we want. We want people to go, look what God is doing. Look what God is doing through them when it's clearly not you. And in all things that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory or belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.